KPBS On Demand is supported by Arizona Raft Adventures, a third-generation family-owned outfitter providing experiential multi-day Colorado River rafting adventures through the Grand Canyon, hiking, exploration, education, and fun. Only a seven-hour drive from San Diego. Learn more at azraft.com. Good morning. I'm Annika Colbert. It's Tuesday, June 29th, a new port of entry at Otay Mesa. More on that next, but first, let's do the headlines. A new study suggests that the two-dose Moderna and Pfizer COVID-19 vaccines could protect people for years, meaning you don't need to get a booster shot. Here's infectious disease specialist Dr. Christian Ramers with Family Health Centers of San Diego. I think it's encouraging that as a general rule, the general population may not need boosters going forward. Uh, In fact, I think we may have selective uh, administration of boosters, uh, for example, to older people or immunocompromised people who may be more likely to lose that response over time. The single-shot Johnson & Johnson vaccine was not part of the study. The California Independent System Operator, or CalISO, says it has enough energy for now to withstand the intense heat waves in San Diego's desert and mountains. Anne Gonzalez is with CalISO, the agency that manages the state's electric grid. She says they're more concerned about thunderstorms expected later this week. The grid is stable and we're not expecting any resource shortfalls. And the thunderstorms, of course, always impact electricity systems because they can be damaging to equipment. Five states have been added to California's ban on taxpayer-funded travel. That brings the total to 17 states. The states added were Arkansas, Florida, Montana, and West Virginia, which have all passed bills preventing transgender women and girls from competing in girls' sports. North Dakota is also on the list. It allows exclusion of trans students from some student organizations. From KPBS, you're listening to San Diego News Now. Stay with me for more of the local news you need. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. A new port of entry is being built at Otay Mesa. Caltrans and Sandag officials say it should reduce peak border wait times. They partnered with Mexico and the U.S. federal government to get the project going. KPBS's Alexandra Von Hell took a visit to the construction site and brings us this report. We're right in front of the border fence here in Otay Mesa, and right behind me are trucks laying down dirt and prepping the foundation for what will be the Otay Mesa East Port of Entry, which is expected to be up and running by 2024. Local and federal agencies signed a memorandum of understanding to ensure the completion of a new port of entry in Otay Mesa. 
It's the first of its kind in the region to be connected to a toll road. Commercial and passenger vehicles will pay a fee to access State Route 11 upon crossing from Mexico. California's Transportation Secretary David Kim says the new entry will have an average wait time of 20 minutes. When Otay Mesa East is complete, peak wait times at the existing ports of entry will be reduced by roughly 50% on opening day. On average, Kim says border crossers wait one to two hours in line while commercial truck drivers wait up to six hours to cross the border. Lieutenant Governor of California Ilani Kunalakis says border wait times is the biggest barrier commercial trade faces. That Mexico truly is California's most important and closest foreign partner. The nearly $600 million project is also expected to reduce pollution along the border. And the wait times for the trucks and for the private vehicles as they cross, their, their engines are going, their motors are still going, and so they're still spewing out greenhouse gas. So the more efficient we can make the crossing be, the less pollution there is. Sandag says they're still working to figure out how much it will cost for drivers to access the toll road. And that was KPBS's Alexandra Ronhell. Two years ago, San Diego County set aside $1.5 million to help backcountry residents make their homes more fire resistant. But last year, county officials decided to spend the money on different fire prevention tactics. iNews Source reporter Kamivon Cannell has more. Flying embers already burned down David Ross's lakeside home once. So in June, he had ember-resistant vents installed to avoid them getting inside again. We're paranoid about fire around here. You know, after you burned out one time, you're, just like, you're pretty alert, you're pretty aware, right? County supervisors wanted to help homeowners protect their dwellings against wildfires by giving grants to replace old vents. But the project got scrapped after the county failed to find a contractor to run it. Officials decided the money would be better spent on other fire safety projects like clearing brush. That was iNews Source reporter Kamivon Cannell. iNews Source is an independently funded nonprofit partner of KPBS. Fireworks could be returning to La Jolla Cove on July 4th. That's if organizers can overcome a legal challenge from people who are concerned about the sea lions there. KPBS environment reporter Eric Anderson has more. La Jolla Point is one of those rare places where nature offers people a glimpse of life usually tucked out of view. Sea lions love to haul out on the rocky shoreline, and that delights the thousands of people who walk along the point each day. The sea lions are comfortable enough here to give birth and to raise their young. Pups can't swim right after birth, and they don't do it well for several months, but they can be seen snuggling and playing with their moms on the rocks. Most of the adoring crowds keep their distance, but some like to sneak closer for a better look or picture. You know, people are often mostly surprised that, that, that you know, that, that there's so little guidance and there's so little oversight of this area. Carol Toye is encouraged that San Diego's promised better signage and a more visible ranger presence, but the Sierra Club worries about another threat. 
we are greatly alarmed about the fireworks. Richard Miller says local boosters want to bring back a 4th of July fireworks display, something that was a staple here for decades. Those fireworks will be launched from the park right beside the sea lion rookery. If they do have fireworks here, that is, will flush every single sea lion off the point and their pups. And once again, there's the opportunity to, that we lose an entire generation of sea lions just from, just from having fireworks here. But La Jolla boosters say the concerns are unfounded. Deborah Marengo is the director of the La Jolla Community Fireworks Foundation. She says the fireworks display is an important community building event. Everyone here in La Jolla loves where we live, our community, our environment. If we ever thought that we were doing any type of harm by celebrating our Independence Day uh, by shooting off fireworks, that show would not go on. But the show hasn't actually happened in La Jolla since 2017. Her group fought off legal challenges in 2010 and 2014 that raised concerns about the environmental impact of the show. There was really no merit. There was no proof that um, the fireworks, which happens one day a year on July 4th and is a 25-minute show, really has never caused any harm. The lawsuits never canceled the fireworks display, but Marengo says the legal fight impacted fundraising. There simply wasn't enough money for shows in 2018 and 2019. End of 2019, beginning of 20, some members of the community wanted to bring it back for 2020. And we had been working on fundraising and we were ready to go with the 2020 show and then the pandemic hit. Moringo says the show is under fire from another lawsuit that she says is the same as earlier challenges. But the Animal Protection and Rescue League sees it differently. Attorney Brian Peace, who sits on the group's board, filed suit in Superior Court. If there's a marine mammal rookery right there, which which has only been since 2019 declared under federal law to exist. So prior to 2019, it wasn't the same legal landscape. So now we have the, the official designation of it being a sea lion rookery. Whether National Marine Fisheries Service is going to enforce that or not, I don't know. Peace says violating a federal law is seen as an unfair business practice in California, and that's the legal avenue they're pursuing. The National Marine Fisheries Service has no opinion on the legal action or the fireworks show. It could be many months before the lawsuit is resolved. And that was KPBS environment reporter Eric Anderson. Coming up, a new podcast exploring the origins of Comic-Con launched recently. Our arts reporter speaks with the creators. That story's next, just after the break. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu.
Matthew Clickstein and Christopher Tyler are self-described geeks who have loved Comic-Con from afar. Clickstein attended one Comic-Con with a documentary crew, and Tyler, who hails from Australia, was never able to go. But their passion for geek culture led them to create a new podcast, taking a deep dive into the origin story of the massive pop culture convention. KPBS arts reporter Beth Accomando speaks with the creator and writer Clickstein and the writer and producer Tyler about their six-part Comic-Con Begins podcast. Matt, what led you to create this podcast? And what was it that made you decide that this was the time to kind of delve into Comic-Con and its origins? Um, I had been trying to write a book about nerd and geek culture, uh, such as it is, for a few years, actually, and ended up putting together a project that went into many different directions, ultimately came out as a book in China a few years ago, um, and was really just sitting on a lot of this material, a lot of this research, and a lot of this passion to help tell the story of the modern nerd, the modern geek, what it means, how it intersects with social issues, how it intersects with global issues, how it intersects with economic issues, corporations, technology, and so forth. Um, and through that process, though, I'd become very good friends, as I often do, with an interviewee for that project, Wendy All, who was one of the original committee members, so to speak, of Comic-Con, was very involved in the early days. And about almost two years ago now, we were talking about working on a project together. And suddenly I said, what am I doing talking with you about all these other things? We should obviously do the oral history of Comic-Con. And around the same time, I was talking with an old friend of mine, Rob Schulte, who had rose, risen up in the ranks in the audio world to becoming a producer at Sirius XM. And he said, you know, we're looking to do some original content over here. What would you think about maybe doing something with your Comic-Con project with us? Wendy was fine with it and the rest went from there. And Christopher, what was it like compiling all these interviews and kind of wading through all this information and research? Well, Matt did a good job of of kind of giving us what he wanted from these interviews. So we said to him, because we I think we ended up doing what, Matt, 40, 50, 60 interviews, something like that. And a lot of them were an hour plus. So there was a lot of content there. And then it was up to Rob and I. We kind of split each episode. I took, you know, episode two, four, and six. He took one, three, and five. And then we kind of just went through and, and pared everything down to a manageable size we wanted this to be the ultimate deep dive into the history not only as of comic-con but of fandom and so-called geek culture and really pop culture itself so we knew we were going to have to talk to 50 or 60 people we pulled all this archival stuff from files we were given a lot of things from san diego state university and people like mike towery and alan light so really the hardest thing was as chris just said going through and you know i had originally put together uh, a document that was, I think, four or 500 pages uh, for Chris and Rob to go through. And they were really tasked with going through it. And as he said, paring it down, because otherwise that first cut would have been something like 50 hours. Uh, so it was a real group effort. And uh, we're very, very proud of everything that came together. It would not have happened without this team. Uh, and I'm so very, very proud of everybody for the work that they did. And just following on from what Matt was saying about all these different interviewees, I think it's really important because we wanted to celebrate everyone who was involved with Comic-Con in the early days. We didn't want to just talk about Comic-Con as a whole and how it became what it became. We wanted to celebrate the people behind Comic-Con. And so we wanted to make sure, you know, if, if someone had a role in those early days, we wanted to bring them on. We wanted to hear their story. We want to get them involved in this project because in the end, 
Matt said it perfectly to me like a couple of months ago. He said he wants this project to be for the people who were in this documentary just as much as for everyone else. He wants this to be something that they can listen to and look back fondly to what they created. And I think that's kind of what we've managed to do. There might only be, there might only be certain interviewees that only got, you know, a couple of lines here and there in the, in the documentary, but as long as we can have them in there and, and recognize their contribution to Comic-Con, I think that was really important. And Matt, I wanted to ask you about the structure of the podcast. I appreciate how many people you interviewed, and I found their stories about the origins of Comic-Con really engrossing. But most of the time, the speakers are not identified, and I found that to be problematic. I know that in a podcast, you can't do lower thirds. So how did you decide on the structure and creating this montage of voices? We wanted to keep it very engrossing and almost kind of immersive. So obviously that, that kind of thing has come up before. We really talked about how are we going to deal with that. We actually had every single person say their name and kind of role in, in Comic-Con. If every single person said what their role is, they would have been talking for 10 minutes. So that was a little difficult. And also we wanted it to flow. We really wanted there to be a narrative flow. And it would have really broken up that flow if we kept saying over and over again, over again who everyone is. Some people are okay with that kind of thing. Some aren't. We do say who every single person is at the end of every episode. We do have transcripts. So if people want that extra resource, it's there. But the last thing I'll say is, some people might not know who so-and-so is or who so-and-so is, but A, it would break up the flow otherwise, and B, that's not really the point here. The point here is this is the story of these people, of this community, of this hub, and everyone's kind of speaking for everyone else, and there really is a Rashomon effect here. And if someone hears something and goes, I don't know if that's necessarily true or not, you know, they can look it up or look into it more. Hopefully they'll listen to the show a few different times. So we really want to have that kind of interactivity with the audience. And, you know, some people might have a problem with it. We understand that. But hopefully people will get why we did that and that we wanted the flow to be organic and to really be there. You do have an upcoming episode focused strictly on Shell Dorf, who's one of the founders. And it is described as kind of this Rashomon kind of storytelling. Talk a little bit about that particular episode and kind of the challenges of putting that together. It was, Beth, absolutely the episode we were most nervous about. We knew this was a, a, a bit of a bugaboo for a lot of the people we talked to. There's a lot of protection around Shell. Uh, it was it was a topic we wanted to make sure we handled correctly. We did not want it to be a hey geography. Shell had a lot of problems. Shell did a lot of things he should not have done, and Shell had you know some issues, obviously. But we also didn't want it to be a jacuzzi. We didn't want to attack him. We really wanted to allow people to just tell their stories, and some of them are pretty harsh and difficult. But there's also a lot of people talking about why they felt bad for Shell. And everyone across the board agrees, even the biggest Shell haters, that without Shell Dorf, there would not have been a Comic-Con. And he did create Comic-Con for the most part and, you know, but did have to step away at a point. And um, we don't want to give too much away. And it was also really important to us that we didn't come to a conclusion about whether Shell was a good guy or a bad guy. We wanted the people who knew him to tell their stories and, and to let us know what they thought of him we didn't want to come down one way or the other. And that was really important from day one. And I think we did a pretty good job of making sure that we weren't editorializing. We weren't saying, well, in the end, Shell was so-and-so. No, no, no. This, this, is, this is a story told from the interviewees completely. Well, I want to thank you both very much for talking about your new podcast. 
Thanks for having us, Beth. Appreciate it. Thanks, Beth. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much. That was Beth Accomando speaking with Matthew Clickstein and Christopher Tyler. Their new podcast, Comic-Con Begins, launched last week with episode two debuting today. And that's it for the podcast today. Be sure to catch KPBS Midday Edition at noon on KPBS Radio or check out the Midday Edition podcast. You can also watch KPBS Evening Edition at 5 o'clock on KPBS Television. And as always, you can find more San Diego news online at kpbs.org. I'm Annika Colbert. Thanks for listening and have a great day. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu.